0: Well, hey, good morning, Redemption. How are you guys doing today? Welcome. Hey, I'm so glad you guys come to hang out with us. We'll just cut that five minutes off the podcast. And uh, we'll just start from right here. Um, Hey, welcome. Uh, So uh, the gospel changes the way we love. We're going to be looking specifically at the relationships of sex, dating, and marriage today. So what I want as we're talking about this, I don't want you to think for the singles out there, be like, oh, man, they're talking about marriage um, this has nothing to do with me. I feel like I'm annexed from the life of the church again. And so that's not what I want you to hear because um, we're going to be talking about things that directly influence and impact your life as well. So I want you to you know, sit on the end of the seat, listen with, uh, with good ears um, at what Jesus has planned for your life. And I know that um, for married couples, what I'm talking today, um, I don't want you to look at your spouse or your husband or wife and say, well, they don't love me like that. I want you to look at yourself, and then I want you to look to Jesus. And I recognize that there are many of us in this room um, who are divorced or separated, and I want you, as we're talking about this today, to, uh, to remember that Jesus loves you first, and that because Jesus loved you, you find your identity in Christ, and you're not one who is formerly loved or previously loved, but one that is fully loved and perfectly loved by the love and grace of Jesus. And so if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we'll be hanging out today. And if you don't have a Bible, we got about three Bibles over there on the Connect Desk. If you would just uh, slip your hand up, uh, Jimmy or Jay or anyone on our serve team we will get a Bible for you. That's our gift for you, completely free. So you got your Bibles, turn them, uh, turn them on. If you have an iPad or any digital device, and you guys can stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. This mystery is profound, and I 'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love your wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated let 's pray, dear heavenly Father, thank you for love that you have generously and graciously given. Um, this amazing gift for us, Lord, that you exampled love in Jesus, that you would give your son, that you would give your life, Lord, that you would give us this church that we could um, walk together hand in hand as we follow you. God, we thank you for this gift of love that is all designed um, to stir our hearts for your glory. Lord, we pray today that um, people in this room that they would recognize your amazing love and that they would look to their partner, their spouse, or their boyfriend, girlfriend. And they would, in turn, love like Jesus does. That we would see relationships restored. That we would see marriages renewed. And we would see identities found in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, as we preach Christ today, I pray that you would draw men unto you. We thank you for all of this. And we say this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So why do we love a good love story? you think about it, you know, all of the iTunes charts, love songs. The major uh, literary works are love stories. Blockbusters are love movies, love stories, romance, comedies, dramas. Why do we love a good love story? Uh, For me, one of the great privileges as a pastor is to be able to perform um, a marriage ceremony or wedding. I love to see the bride walk in from the back. I love to look at her face and turn and look at um, the groom's face as he sees hers for the first time. It's beautiful. I love it. Why do we love love? Why do we love when people fall in love? Why do we love to see people get married? Why do we, our hearts break when relationships don't work? It's because there is an inner desire and longing inside of all of us to be known and to be loved. And that is God's great story of redemption, that God would place this desire inside of us to point us to a greater cause, to a greater reason, to a greater purpose. That we know that our life is not um, found within ourselves, and that there is something greater that our hearts are longing for. And this is God's story of redemption. And what marriage is, what love is, what sex is, is it's what's called a common grace, a common grace is a gift that God gives everyone, regardless of believers and non-believers. It's a grace that God gives so that way it would stir our hearts and point us to him. That we are a part of a greater story, that we are a part of a larger narrative, and that our life is just a piece of that puzzle. And it's a common grace that God gives to everyone, regardless of beliefs, uh, It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what your nation is, what tribe or what tongue or what time you were born in. All of God's creation, God's creatures, God's children um, have the opportunity and the blessing to be a part of love. And it's something that God has designed since the very beginning. And we see that in the Bible, it opens up in Genesis with the marriage between Adam and Eve. And then the book closes in the book of Revelation with the marriage of Jesus and his church. So all of the Bible is a great love story. The Bible is a perfect love story, letting us know that we are perfectly loved. And that God would give us this great gift, that God would call us, that God would bring alongside of us someone that we could spend our life with, someone that we could walk with, someone that we could cherish and what happens is, is in our day, in our culture, marriage is, and love is, an interesting thing. The way people define love is differently. And some people say love is to make me happy, love is to meet my needs, love is a feeling, you know it when you see it. And they, they dump all of their own meanings into this word. So now we kind of don't understand what this word means because everyone has their own definition. That you can understand it, but you can't explain it. And as a common grace, what this means is that it was a shadow or a foretype of what Jesus is uh, going to do with his church. And so, um, while some say they can't define it, we have the perfect definition. His name is Jesus. And that in Jesus, we know that we are perfectly loved. We know that we are fully loved. And that it is in the person and work of Jesus that we understand what love is. So as a Christian... Um, It is impossible for us to understand love apart from the person and work of Jesus. And so as today, as we put all of our meanings and terms on what love means, what happens is is that we create this job description of what it means to be loved and then we hand it to someone else. And we have all of these expectations and descriptions of what it means uh, to find my needs or to love me and we hand it to someone else and they fail us. We hand it to a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they fail us. We hand it to a fiance and they fail us. We hand it to a husband and wife and like they will, they will fail you. And then once you feel like the relationship has ended, you feel this deep sense of loss and bitterness and longing. and You feel unloved and you feel broken like there's something wrong with you. And the reason for that being is that we have handed the job description to someone else when that is a role that only Jesus could fill in your life. And that only Jesus can love you perfectly. Only Jesus can know you fully. Only Jesus can save us, can set us free, can fill the need that we have. And it is in Christ that we are completed and not in others. And it's in Christ that we are loved. And then we take that love that he has given us and we give it to the ones we love. And this is the relationship of Jesus, to know that you are perfectly loved in Christ. And that when the relationship ends, then that you don't lose your identity. You don't lose your identity in the relationship or in your sexuality or anything because you know your identity comes from Christ first. And as your identity comes from Christ, it sets us free And you don't find yourself as one who was formerly loved, but one who is fully loved. You don't find yourself as one who is um, previously loved, but one who is perfectly loved. And this love comes only from the person and work of Jesus. It is the inner desire and longing that all of us have. And the Bible here says it is found in Christ. And love and sex and marriage is designed to point us to a greater meaning. So here in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 5, it mentions love six times. So how does Jesus love us? It says he loves us like this church. How as a husband and a wife are we to love? We're supposed to love like Jesus. And we love people when we recognize that Jesus loves us first, it frees us to love others. So first it says that Jesus loves us as the head. Another way to put it is that Jesus loves us as our leader. As all decisions are made in the head, right? And so Jesus is the head of his church. Another way to think of it is Jesus as the leader. Here at Redemption, I may be the pastor, but Jesus is the leader. I may stand up on this stage and preach, but Jesus is the leader of this church. It's what Jesus wants, it's what we do. When Jesus moves, we follow. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us, it's about him. And so as Jesus leads us, we serve and we follow together. So Jesus is the great leader of In our lives. And so, as a leader, what that means is that he takes responsibility. A leader takes responsibility. So, it was our sin, but he became responsible for that. That Christ would step down from heaven into history and he would live the perfect life, he would die the perfect death, so in him we could be made perfect. And that on the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself, that he was innocent, but he became guilty. So that way we could be set free. And this is what the gospel means, is that Jesus would free us and give us new life. That he took responsibility for your sins, for my sins. So what does that look like for us as a husband and a wife? What does it look like in a marriage relationship, that we would see Jesus as our leader? And here as it talks about the husband and wife being the head of the church... And it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. This verse can get misconstrued from various viewpoints and uh, different understandings. And so I'll leave it simply like this. It says, wives, to submit to your husbands. And then it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And a lot of people take this verse and give permission for male dominance. Like, uh, but Jesus, as we see as a leader, he doesn't dominate us. He loves us like a husband loves his wife. He doesn't lead over us like a tyrant. He serves us and he gave his life for us. So as a husband, to be the leader in your house means to die for your family. It means to give your life for the family. And as a wife, it means to serve and to follow. What the Bible here calls for is a mutual submission. That the wife would submit and the husband would submit. And that both hand in hand would follow Jesus as the leader in their home. And that's what it calls for is that we are brought together to love one another as we follow Jesus, and that Jesus is the leader in your house, and that God has placed two people together to follow Him, to set an example for your children, to set an example for your coworkers, to set an example for your neighbors. And this is what it means for us to live our lives in mutual submission. The second way Jesus loves us is as our savior. This means that we need to be saved. That we have separated ourselves from God and that in our life that we have made a mess and Jesus enters into that and he saves us. And so what this means is that we are saved by his grace, not by our works. We are not saved by our morality, our spirituality, our philanthropy. We are not saved by our philosophy. We are only saved by the person and work of Jesus. And when we recognize that it's not about what we do but about what he has done, that frees us from the from the bondage that frees us from the guilt that frees us from the condemnation and it allows us to love like Jesus so what does that look like for us as we're getting into marriage and as we are looking at sex and relationships and dating how does Jesus love change our love well first is take a deep breath I'm gonna say it; it's gonna be like ripping a band-aid off just take a deep breath real quick you can't save anyone let it out Okay, you got it? You can't save anyone. You can't change anyone. And I know you think you can, especially college students. You think, I can change them. No, you can't. You can't even change your GPA, <laughs> let alone change somebody else. You think, well, they're cute, but they drink a little but too much. You think, you know, hey, you know, they, uh, they're nice, but they don't follow Jesus. Don't worry about it. Look to Christ. And think, can they love me like Jesus loves me? And you can't change anyone. I meet people all the time who think that they can fix someone. They think that they can change someone. Well, Jesus is the only one who can save us. Jesus is the only one who can change us. And this sets us free because we don't enter into these codependent relationships where we're always looking for the other person to make us happier, to fulfill our needs. And when we step into someone's life and we try to change them, we rob them of God's salvation. And we step in and we try to change them. You are not God. And if you're looking to someone else to save you or change you, they are not God. And when we enter into that type of relationship, it crushes you. You can't carry the weight of someone else's soul. You can hold their hand, but you can't carry the weight of their salvation. Only Jesus can do this. So as we look to Christ He frees us, and then we need to point others to him. But be aware and be careful as we enter into these types of relationships. Because I'll I'll tell you a story from me and Ashley's marriage. When we first, actually when we were dating, when we first got together, we've been dating for about um, a year and a half now at this time, and Ashley had entered into like a moment of depression, a serious moment of depression to where some days she didn't get out of bed, and uh, turn the lights on. She would just kind of sit there and watch TV. She didn't have a job. She didn't have her driver's license. She wasn't in college. And uh, she was just in kind of this moment of this transition of life to where, you know, adolescence is ending and adulthood is beginning. And you kind of have to make a choice and decision, like, where do I go from here? And, um, and so I was working two jobs. I was in college. And she lives in Houston, and I lived here, and we would drive back and forth because we had a long-distance relationship for the first uh, two and a half years of our, uh, re- of our dating life. And so um, I was up there one day, and, you know, the, the passion of young love kind of started to settle down. You realize you can't go out to eat for every meal, you're broke, um, and all of your friends are gone because you've grossed them out. Um, and, and so we started really thinking about the future, and... As we're looking into this relationship, I realized that um, if we were to be married or if we were to continue this relationship, like things were going to have to change. That she was going to have to take that next step. See, Ashley had been looking to me um, for her validation. I had been looking to me for her um, value and for her worth. And She found her worth in our relationship and that um, I had placed myself in that as that, if I was trying to make her happy, I was trying to change her, I was trying to motivate her, I was trying to um, get her to take that next step, and I loved her. But we had the conversation. I was like, "Hey, if you know things don't change, if you don't get a job, if you don't get a license, if you don't make this step, like it's not going to work." And um, and that night she cried. We prayed, and she began to trust Jesus instead of me. And by the end of the year, she had got a job. She was in college. And uh, we had gotten married within the next year and a half. And she moved out of that depression because she began to put Christ first and took me off of the throne in her heart. And and that's what it means for us to not um, try to be someone else's savior, but to give them to Jesus and let him start working on them. The third way Jesus loves us is as our giver. And today in our day and age, people know very little about sacrificial generosity because we live in an entitled culture where we think everything exists for our pleasures. Everything exists for our passions. It exists to meet our needs. But Jesus is the greatest giver. And it's important for us to understand as a church redemption because it is in our generosity that love is on display. And so as Jesus put love on display through generously giving of his life, that God so loved the world, he what? He gave and that Jesus would give his life, and that Jesus would give us this church, and that Jesus would give his life for the church. Jesus is the greatest giver who has ever lived, and we want to be like Jesus, so we need to be generous, and this plays out in our marriage. You know, I can tell if a husband loves his wife just by walking into their house, just by walking into their house, and how do you know? Follow the money. You just follow the money. You can tell where a person's love is by the possessions that they own. And you can tell where a person's heart is by where their wallet is. And you can understand where a person lies just by looking at the possessions that surround them. And you say, I love my wife, but if I walk into your house and I see a, you know, a 50, 60-inch 4K, flat screen TV, Xbox, PS4, an ATV in the yard, golf clubs, and you're always off going to baseball games, golfing with your buddies and drinking with your friends while your wife is at home wearing hand-me-downs and your kids are playing with hand-me-downs. And you say, I love my family, but no, you don't. Because if you loved your family, then they would be the most cherished possession that you have. And that you would stop um, using people to get things and you would start using things to love people. And you say, I love my family. No, you don't. You don't look around you. You Say, I love my family. I deserve this time. I, I work really hard to put food on the table. Look at all the ways that I love my family. You don't. How do I know? Just follow the money. And the best way to understand whether or not someone feels loved is by simply asking them, do you feel loved? And if he or she says, I don't feel loved, They're not loved. Because you don't get to determine the love someone else feels. They are to let you know. And you can say, I do all of these things. But if they don't feel loved, they're not loved. And so we don't get to determine whether or not our spouse feels loved. We get to give and we get to serve. But they are the ones to determine whether or not they're being loved correctly. And the greatest way we can know and show our love is through our generosity. And so for that, what it means for us is that we love to put love on display. We do that through sacrificial generosity. And it's okay for you to blow a little money to make a few memories. But it's not okay for you to blow all of your money and then leave your home bankrupt. That you would not steward your family well. That you would not save well. That you would not give well. And redemption, it's important for us to understand that Jesus gave so we give. We give of our time, our talents, and our money. So that way we can give ourselves to what Jesus has given himself to. He gave himself for the church. And so whatever hobbies or interests you are in, whatever causes, in 2,000 years they will be gone. All your friends, your causes, your hobbies, your interests, your uh, possessions will all be gone in 2,000 years. But the church of Jesus Christ will still be growing. And it's not because we're amazing, it's not because we're awesome, but it's because Jesus loves his church. And so when you think about the way you give, when you think about the way you love, give yourself to what Jesus gives himself to. And I know what you're thinking, it's all about the money now, right? No, it's about the heart. It's all about the heart. It's about the opportunity. It's about leaving a legacy for your children. It's about leaving a legacy for your family, a place for them to flourish, a place for them to grow. And this is how Jesus loves his church and that he would provide for us, that he would care for us. So in return, husbands and wives should provide and care for their church, their children, and their legacy. The fourth way Jesus loves us is as our sanctifier. What this means is that Jesus has entered into our mess, and he has made a way for us. Have you ever seen, like, uh, uh, me and Ashley, rather, um, as you might know, we don't have children yet, okay? And it's not for a lack of trying, so uh, practice makes perfect. But uh, all of our friends, as we're in our 30s, they are starting to have kids. And so I'm in a group text with, you know, three or four of my other friends, and they they like to send me pictures of their babies, their newborns. And I don't know if you know this yet, but babies are disgusting. I send me these pictures, and I think, how did all of these bodily fluids come from such a tiny person? And there is just poop and puke and snot everywhere and it's kind of amazing and I think how did that get from down there to up there and 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 so they send me these pictures and it makes me um, doesn't make me want to be a parent anymore but we keep praying and God's going to give us one one day and so um, they send me these pictures of their kids and I was hanging out with my friend Brandon and his baby just um, spit up just vomited everywhere out of nowhere and just kind of was sitting in it. And I was like, hey, Brandon, I think there's something wrong with your kid. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you can tell the parent because they're the one who is running to the child. I'm like, no, 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 no. Keep that thing away from me. I don't want to. I am not going to. You can't make me. And, and Brandon comes in. He's like, hey, it's not a big deal. And he picks up his baby and he makes a, some dumb noises as he talks to him. And he changes them. He saves somebody. He picks him up, he loves him, he cherishes him. He changes him and then he sets him back down. And that's what Jesus does to us. And some of you and some of us in this room, like we're really sitting in it. And Jesus comes to us and he saves us and he changes us. He is our great sanctifier. And he is our cleanser and he loves you like that. And so Jesus enters into our mess and he makes a way possible. And so this is important for us to recognize how Jesus saves us and changes us and sanctifies us because it is a process that is gonna take your entire life. You are justified at salvation, but that just means that you pick up and you walk with Jesus being sanctified over and over until you're 80. You're gonna be 80 and you're still trying to figure out how this whole Jesus thing works. And that's the same with marriage is it takes commitment. It takes walking together, hand in hand, following Jesus and it will take you the rest of your life. You're going to be 80 and you're still going to be trying to figure out how a woman works. You're going to be 80 and you're still trying to figure out how to make your husband happy and how to raise a family. You're going to be 80 and you're still trying to figure it out. And that's the purpose of what marriage looks like as a commitment, as a covenant, that someone would come alongside of you and that they would make you holy. The purpose of marriage is not for your happiness. The purpose of marriage is for your holiness, That God would bring someone alongside of you to walk with you. That they would be able to grow with you. And that they would be able to make you holy. And if you think that you are without sin, wait until you get married. Because there's someone sitting there right next to you who, by God's grace, is pointing out all your flaws. That's what sanctification looks like that your husband and wife are the greatest disciples that God would call you together to walk together in following him. The purpose of marriage is not happiness, but holiness. And the purpose of marriage is for two people to point each other to Jesus and to serve together, to love together, and to grow together as they follow Jesus every day for the rest of their lives. And the fifth way that Jesus loves us as his church is that he cherishes us, that he is our cherisher. And as Jesus cherishes us, That means he is at work in us. That he is at work in us and he is at work through us. That he loves us, he lifts us up, and he gives himself to us. And he is working in us and sometimes he is working in spite of us. See, the idea behind this is that marriage, relationships, sex, dating, all of it takes work. It all takes work. That we have to work in our relationships Love is like a garden. Marriage is like a garden. It takes work. And a lot of people love a good garden, but not very many people have a garden. Why? Because it takes work. It takes um, taking your Saturdays off. It means pulling weeds. It means getting on your knees and getting your hands dirty. It means you're investing of your time and your money into this. It takes work to have a marriage. And so if you want to have a marriage that flourishes and feeds your family, you got to water your garden. And when it comes to looking at other people's grass, and if it seems greener, that means it's time for you to start watering your own garden. And a lot of people, what they do is they want the relationships of love, but they don't want the responsibilities of love. They want to experience the relationships of love, but they don't want to put in the um, responsibilities of love. And so, what that means for us is that we live in one of the most uh, sexually charged and confused cultures, um, probably in the last hundreds of years, if not um, in history. And so, as we uh, live in this culture, people are asking questions, and they are confused, and they are living it out in ways um, that, that that betrays their identity. And so, by the time a child is eleven, they are exposed to hardcore pornography. And by the time a teenager is 17, half of all 17-year-olds by then have lost their virginity. And as people are waiting longer to get married, for women it's the age of 27, and for, for men it's the age of 30. Instead of websites like eHarmony and Match.com, now we have apps like Tinder. to where we have you know, hookups and sexual partners and dates in the palm of our hands and in our pockets. So this is the time and the culture that we live in. And when surveyed amongst um, boomers, those who were raised in the 1970s, 48 um, percent of them said sex outside of marriage um, was not OK. When surveyed amongst the millennials, 68 percent of us said it was fine. And so what I find interesting in that, in the way that millennials view sex is that even though we have more progressive and tolerant views when it comes to sexuality and marriage, we are least likely to act on those views because millennials will have about half of the sexual partners as their parents and grandparents. It's pretty interesting that our parents and grandparents would have more sexual partners than millennials. And I know all of us think, you know, this generation is self-titled and self-entitled and it's all about them and their pleasures and stuff. And remember what it was like for you to grow up as well. And that millennials are actually engaged in sexual activity not as much as the previous generations. And so why is that? Why would we be more progressive in our views of sexuality and our views of sexual liberty but yet act on these views less? In my opinion, it's for two reasons. First is for friends. And the second is for fear. First is friends. Is that millennials, people between the ages of 18 and 30... Um, are having less sexual partners because they're having more sex with their friends or acquaintances, friends with benefits or platonic sexual relationships. And then the second reason is for fear. Many of us, we grew up in a time to where people told us and we saw the horrors and dangers of HIV, AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases. So we're more aware of um, protected sex and we're more aware of multiple partners. And so we don't have sex because we are aware of the disease that comes along with it. But the other reason is because the number one fear of millennials um, sexually is for rejection and coercion. That someone would force themselves upon them or that someone would reject them. And so we see in millennials that there is a confusion when it comes to sex. That there is a um, challenge when it comes to sex. And everyone thinks that everyone around them is having more sex than them. And it's this culture of perception that we have lifted up, that we have um, created as an idol in our culture, but nobody's practicing. Very few. And so I I began to look at some articles and kind of research into this, and I I found it was very interesting. Um, One lady in New York Magazine said this. It's as if the sexual freedom has become a burden as well as a gift. It's almost as if we've followed the sexual revolution from the 60s all the way to the end of the cliff and we've looked over and we've seen it for the abyss that it is. And there is nothing there. It's like we have followed to the end and we have looked down and there's nothing there. That we've become bored and confused and overstimulated and we have become desensitized to sex. When asked about this with theologian Russell Moore this is what he had to say They are searching desperately not for mere sex but for that to which sex points something they know exists that they can't uh, identify they're looking to be a part of an all-encompassing cosmic mystery they're looking for a love that is stronger than death It's Russell Moore does that sound familiar And I know what you're thinking you're probably saying like where are we going He just took a huge left turn. We were talking about uh, love and marriage and Jesus and the church and how he saves us and cherishes us and nurtures us and provides for us. You got me on that generosity thing, but I was tracking with you for a minute. Now you're over here talking about sex and millennials. Where are you going with this? Well, if you would read with me for verse uh, 32 and 33, this is what Paul is still alluding to. He writes about sex and he says this Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church However let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband And what Paul is writing here is he is writing to the church He is calling for something that is completely radical in their culture. And I'll tell you why. What Paul is writing here is that he is not talking about, um, he is not quoting some civil rights leader or some poet. He is referring all the way back to the book of Genesis. As he says, a husband and wife will become one flesh. And many people think that Christians have a very um, sexually repressive views when it comes to relationships. But I I want to present to you um, two ideas uh, just two, because I say that Christians have a very progressive and high view when it comes to sex. And I want to present two, uh, just two parts of this. And it would take an entire sermon series for us to walk through the beauties and glory of sex. And the reason why I want to do this is because some of us were raised thinking that sex was taboo. In a church, you're not allowed to talk about sex. You're not supposed to talk about sex. So we went to culture and we learned about sex. We went and we learned about sex from our friends, and we didn't hear about it from the one who created it. That we didn't hear about sex talked about in the church. So welcome to redemption. Let's talk about sex, baby. (laughs) Is that as Christians, we see sex as a sacred act that God has given us to point each other to him. And, And so when it comes to sex, some of us were raised and we were taught sex is bad. Don't have sex. Sex is gross. Sex is dirty. Wait until you're married. And then we get married and we're scared. Or we get married and we see it still as gross. And some of us, because of the way we were raised or something that we have done or something that has been done to us, we view sex as God. That sex would become our God. That it would be something that we need or something that we desire to fulfill a need. Or that it is our way to feel dominant, our way to feel attractive. It is our way to feel and feed the need that we have inside of ourselves. And that, one, we would become, uh, serve sex as God or we would serve as God with sex. And then we would um, take from others or we would give ourselves to others to find in our identity. So one way is we can see sex is that it's gross. Another way we can see sex is as God. But God presents sex in a whole nother way. And that he says it is a gift. The Bible talks about sex all the time. I mean the Bible opens up in the book of Genesis with a naked man and a woman singing songs together. And then as you walk through, it always has a positive view and understanding of what sex is. And you turn to places like Proverbs or the Song of Songs, and it says, for sex, it is good for a husband to be ravished by his wife's breasts. So you think, do you take the Bible literally? Sometimes. It's good to take the Bible literally. Sex is an important part of God's design for us. Not just for procreation, but to see the glory of creation. So how does sex fit into the Christian perspective or the Christian view? Why do we have such a high view of sex? Well, first, it's because when Paul says husband and wife, what he was referring to, what he was saying is that women have value and worth. In that time in that day and age, women were seen as possessions. They weren't seen as equals. And what Paul is writing here to the church in Ephesus, he is reminding from the very beginning that God has always placed high value, equality, and worth on a woman. And so when we join together sexually with our husband or our wife, we become one together. We are not becoming one anatomically or biologically. We are becoming one spiritually. We are giving of ourselves spiritually And what it is saying is that I have found my equal, I have found my mate. And that I'm willing to do with my body what I have promised to do with my life. That I would give of myself, that I would expose of myself. And when I lay naked with my spouse, I'm laying naked before her, not just physically but spiritually. That I would be willing to do with my whole life what I have promised to do with my soul. And so for us as as Christians, we see sex as a covenant covenant not as a consumer, not as a consumer. And I'll explain this to you, that the second part is that we view sex as a covenant good and not a consumer good. What a consumer good says is that this is a need that I have that I need to be met. And so we go out and we try to meet that need. And we go to someone and we look for sex in them to meet the need and desire that we have in ourselves. And we have a appetite or we need to feel attractive or we need to find a a somebody and so then we begin to use sex as a tool a tool to keep a relationship a tool to get a relationship therefore sex becomes like marketing and sex is just a way for us to make connections with people and for some of us we get in relationships and we need sex to keep the relationship going and then instead of deciding to get marriage we kind of slide into marriage And as we slide into marriage, we cohabitate, we have sex, but there is no real promise of a future. And what one lady said in an article I read through New York Mag and the same one was that it was almost like a year-long job interview to be his wife. And you never really know how it's going because you never talk about it. And that sex would become um, a way for us to keep one another. And that if that need's not met, then we're free to go meet that need somewhere else. And that sex becomes like a consumer good. Researchers have found that cohabitating couples or trial marriages have a lower view of their live in partner than they have of expectations for a spouse. But God has a higher expectation. And that we as Christians, we have a high view of what it means to understand sex because we view sex as a covenant. That is a willingness to say, like, if I'm giving you my body, I'm also giving you my soul. That I am committing to you the deepest desires and possibilities of my heart. To be vulnerable before you, spiritually and physically. And then when we do that, we see that we become one together. One flesh. And sex becomes a sacred act. And then, therefore, we view sex as a sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is like um, baptism or communion. It's like baptism or communion that when we have sex, we are renewing our vows before God. And when we see sex as a sacrament, it becomes a beautiful thing that is renewing of our vows, that is receiving within ourselves the love from someone else. Just like when we take communion and we receive in ourselves the spirit of God, so too when we have sex, we receive in ourselves the partnership and union with one another. And this is the same as a common grace, that God has given sex as a gift to everyone across all cultures to remind us and point us to him. Just as God and the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are one, just as Jesus and the church become one, just as you and Christ become one, so you and your spouse become one as well. And that you walk together in your lives, living that out, and you're reminding one another about the love that Christ has shown us. And this is not the way that it's always been for me. This is not the way it's always been for Ashley. And maybe it's not the way that it's always been for you. And if that's you in this room, I want you to say, I want you to know that Jesus doesn't think you are nasty, dirty, or defiled. That you can come to Jesus and he would clean you by the washing of the water with the word. That in Jesus, he gives us and cleans us and saves us. And the bride of Christ in the Bible wears white. That Jesus would clean you up and he would place a white dress on you. And you would no longer be defiled, but you would be clean. That Jesus loves you regardless of what you have done. That Jesus saves you and gives you new life, new identity, new purpose. You don't have to find your identity in what has happened or what you have done or your sexuality or your identity in a person or a partner or any of those things. You can find it perfectly in the love of Jesus. And for me and Ashley, this is something that we had to learn as well. When we first started dating, we were very sexually active. Um, When we first started dating, um, I would drive to Houston and she would come here And we were very sexually active. That's all I could say about that. (laughs) And it was about a year into it that the Holy Spirit began to convict both of us about having sex before marriage. We had given our lives to Jesus about 20. um, But it took about a year for us to get our foundation underneath us. And at that time, the Lord began to convict us about having sex before we were married and I went to Ashley and I told her I said hey I think that we should you know, wait until we're married and what had happened was is that I had placed Ashley I had sinfully made Ashley feel as if the only way she could make me happy was to satisfy me sexually And that would be the only way to keep our relationship going. And sinfully, I believe the reason for her depression was because of me. It was because I was placing on her something she could never fulfill. And I was looking into her to satisfy a piece of me that she could never satisfy. And the weight of our relationships and our codependence crushed her. And at the same time, I felt unworthy to be loved. I remember there was a breakdown that we had at my grandparents' house where out of nowhere I just snapped and I just cried because I felt unworthy to be loved. Like how could she love me? How could God love me? How could God forgive me? How could I be a part of this family? And I felt completely undeserving and unloved and unworthy. And that day we decided to put Jesus first in our love. And that day we decided to put Christ first in our relationship. That she would stop finding me as God and I would stop using her. And we would both turn and we would follow Jesus together. And it was from that moment forward, was it hard? Yes. Was it worth it? Yes. Because we saw our love flourish. That we began to actually have conversations with one another. That we began to enjoy our dates with one another we began to love one another more fully because we were able to give of ourselves in the way that Jesus loved us first. And that changed the way we loved. And so I wanna tell you today that the gospel changes the way you love. This is important for you when you're looking at who you're gonna date. When you're single and you're in the room and you're wondering, who am I gonna date? And you turn and you look to someone and they're walking alongside of you, serving the church and loving Jesus, then go for it you say like, can this person love me like Jesus? By God's grace, they're trying and they're walking and we can walk hand in hand together. But if you're trying to fix them or save them, run away. Let Jesus work in them, let Jesus work on them. And so when it comes to sex, love and marriage, what we need to do is we need to find our identity in Christ to know that first and foremost, it's about Jesus and that love is to point us to Christ and that our identity comes from his love. And when we know that we are perfectly loved. It allows us and frees us to love others with the love he gives us. And that our identity is not found in our partners. And we can be single and still be satisfied. We can be married and still working together towards the call of Christ for the rest of our lives. We can be divorced and we know that we are forgiven and we are loved. We can be widowed and know that we are redeemed. And that we are not one who is previously loved, but perfectly loved in the person and work of Jesus. And this is why as Christians it is impossible for us to define love apart from the grace of God. When we see that Jesus loves us, it frees us to love like Jesus. And this is good news for singles. Because this means that you can be single like Jesus. Jesus. And you can be and serving his church and giving to his church and working in your jobs for the glory of God. You can be single like Jesus was single. And this is good news for those of us who are divorced because you know that you are perfectly loved in Jesus. You are perfectly loved in Jesus. And this is good news for us who are widows because we know we are united in Christ in newness of life. And this is good for us who are engaged because we can wait like Jesus with eager anticipation of what he's about to bring. And this is good news for those of us who are married because Jesus has given us someone to make us holy and to walk alongside of us and to love us in spite of us. And this is good news for those of us who are married, but their spouse is not following Jesus. Because that means that God has placed you together in a specific place today to where you can be the example of Christ in your marriage by loving, by serving, by leading those who are not yet on their faith journey. This is good news. Sex is good news. Marriage is good news. Dating, love, and relationships are good news. And it's good news designed to point us to Jesus. And all of this in the past was a mystery, but now it has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus. And when we see that Jesus loves us, it frees us up to love like Jesus. And the big idea is this, is that Jesus loves you perfectly. And when we receive the love we need, we are free to start loving others. That all of this is found in the person and work of Christ. So I know today, as we call the band forward, there's a big overview of what it means to be loved by Jesus and to love Our partners in the way that he loves us so I want to give you a challenge so we come forward I want to give you a challenge today something you could go home and you can work on so here's my homework for you redemption me and Ashley along with a couple that we started doing marriage counseling with we came up with this um, on the other night me and Ashley have started doing devotions together we've always done them which is something I need to work on better as a husband but uh, we started doing devotions, and you can download the UVersion Bible app on um, your iPhone or in your Android store, whatever Android people call that thing, I don't even know. But you can download the Bible app, and there you can sync them together, add friends, add your spouse as a friend. And there is a um, devotion in there, lots of devotions, reading plans. Um, we're reading through This Day Forward by Groeschel. Um, And so it's cool because when she's at work and I'm at work, we can, you know, kind of read them together and talk about it and pray together when we come home. Um, And if you don't have a spouse, do it with your uh, fiancé, do it with your boyfriend, girlfriend. And if you're single, do it with somebody in your missional community or somebody who's a a friend of yours. Pick a devotion and start walking through it. The second thing that I would say for you is um, go spend a little money and make a few memories. Take each other out on a date this week. Do something nice. Be generous. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And I want you to remember it's about Jesus. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus saves you. That Jesus forgives you. So we're going to have communion uh, today. It's on either side as we take communion every week. Um, and so this is a sacrament. What is that? It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. We invite you forward to come and take communion. And maybe there are some of us in this room as we're going to open up the altars for prayer. Um, We are open the altars in prayer. Maybe today you feel like you need Jesus to save you, that you are sitting in it and you need a sanctifier, someone to cleanse the mess of your life. We wanna invite you to come and pray with our elders on either side. Maybe it's for your marriage. You need renewal in your marriage. You need hope in your marriage. You need grace in your marriage. Come forward, we wanna pray for you. Maybe it's in your relationships husband and wife or engaged couple or boyfriend, girlfriend where you need strength and resolve we want to pray for you as well maybe it's healing from past hurts sexual hurts emotional hurts we want to pray for you that God would set you free because when Jesus frees us it frees us to love others amen amen we're going to bless communion and I invite you to come forward row by row as we take it take and eat Remember, believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of our sins. Take and drink. Remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of our sins. Tables are ready. Don't wait, don't hold back. Come get some prayer.